It's TechBiter Worldwide for the week of December 7th, 2008. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in far less than an hour. That's because we leave out the sports, the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. And with the beginning of December, my thoughts, and perhaps yours, have turned to digital cameras. A lot of people think about those this time of year. Think about them as a possible present at Christmas time. And perhaps a different reason to think about digital cameras this year, if you don't already have one, if you're still using film, in a tight economy, digital makes a lot of sense. There's no cost for film or processing. The only time you have to pay is when you want to have prints made. And you may not be doing too much of that. These days, most people share photographs by emailing them, putting them on a website, or putting them on a special photo-sharing site. A long time ago, and I think maybe it was in an alternate universe, I was a professional photographer. Well, until last summer, I hadn't photographed a wedding for at least 15 years, but my older daughter's oldest friend asked if I would photograph her wedding. How could I refuse? Well, things have certainly changed. Digital photography makes it possible to produce a better product. Professional photographers help you remember important events such as weddings, and I certainly recommend hiring a professional if you're having an event like a wedding. But when it comes to the day-to-day pictures that will mean so much to your children 30 or 50 years from now, well, those are your responsibility. Sometimes, I was thinking, we don't need perfection. Sometimes, all we need is good enough. So it really doesn't take an expensive camera. And normally I shoot with my digital SLR because it gives me all the control I want and high-quality image files that I can work with after the fact to fix things that aren't quite right. Maybe the light wasn't quite right. Well, you can fix that. But in late November, I joined some co-workers at a Habitat for Humanity job site. I was swinging a hammer, raising walls, and lugging shingles all day. I wanted to take pictures, but I certainly didn't want to take along the digital SLR, and I had two reasons for that. First, my primary job was going to be carpentry, and the camera would just get in the way. And second, it would be easy to damage a camera because my primary focus would be on construction. So I stuck a little $100 point-and-shoot digital camera in my pocket. And the pictures I brought back were good enough. The camera is advertised as a 10-megapixel device, but this is clearly a bit of hyperbole on the part of the camera manufacturer. Olympus says the images are 10-megapixel images because they're interpolated to that size. The sensor clearly creates a much smaller image, and then it gets enlarged so that it'll be 10 megapixels. Well, to make things worse, the highest quality JPEG image, the only file format that that particular camera knows, still leaves a lot of artifacting. So the best I'm going to get from this camera is mediocre quality. One of the problems with this camera is what's called fringing, kind of a glow around objects. And you'll see what I mean on the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. Our eyes are fairly forgiving when it comes to image quality. If you print one of these images at snapshot size, the color fringing probably won't be visible. When viewed at full size, though, it's quite visible. 
The fringe effect occurs at transition points in the image. It's the result of a relatively inexpensive lens, the quality of the sensor and the inexpensive camera, and the algorithm used to expand the image to 10 megapixels while keeping the file size under control. Now, as a professional photographer, I would never accept this quality. But as a guy working on a construction site, I found it to be more than good enough. The same might be true for family snapshots taken around the house. After all, what's better, a less-than-optimal picture or no picture? So, during my day as a construction worker, and construction workers take note, your jobs are not in danger from me. I occasionally took a short break, pulled the camera out of my jacket pocket, aimed it at a co-worker, and grabbed a quick image. I tried to frame the images reasonably well, but when I uploaded the images to my computer, I found that most of them, as I expected, could use a little help. You'll see on the TechBiter Worldwide website a picture that's sort of okay. It's framed reasonably well, probably should be a little tighter, and the color is off just a bit. So... The first problem I tackled was removing some of the excess blue. This happens when you're shooting under a blue sky, and particularly if it's a cloudy day. The color correction is fairly subtle, but if you visit the website, you'll see that it is visible. I was using Adobe Lightroom 2 to do this, so then I cropped the image. One of the nice things about Lightroom 2 is your crops aren't destructive. The entire image remains. What Lightroom does, it simply makes a note of where you'd like to crop the image and then it shows it to you that way. If you later decide you don't want it cropped, you take the crop off. So with just a very small amount of work, I created a much better image from a snapshot camera. You really don't need a professional photographer or an expensive camera to create pictures that you and your family will enjoy decades from now. Even if you don't do any of the enhancement work, you'll still be giving your children some important memories, and these are memories that they will cherish. And since we're on the digital photo theme this week, I thought this would be a good week to take a look at Adobe Photoshop CS4. I would call this 11th time is the charm. That's right, this is the 11th iteration of Adobe Photoshop. The application just keeps getting better. This time around, Adobe spent a lot of time on stability, reliability, ease of use, and the user interface. They spent more time there than on developing new features. Even so, there are several nifty new features. Sometimes what seems like a really small feature provides a lot of advantages. Tabs are one of those. Remember when browsers didn't have tabs? Now they all do, and the benefits are clear to anyone who has ever tried to have more than one website open at a time. Well, the same is true for Photoshop. Those tabs really improve usability. Such a little thing to make such a big difference. On the other hand, I'm not yet entirely certain that I like the Masks and Adjustments panel. They've changed that quite a bit. I suspect the feature will grow on me about the same way that Microsoft's ribbon interface in Office 2007 did. But right now it seems to take too much space on the interface. Adobe's goal was to provide quick, easy access to common masking tools for both pixel and vector-based masks. And indeed, they've succeeded in doing that. A year, maybe two years ago, I watched a presentation that showed an adjustment tool that some people were developing. It was an adjustment tool that would allow a user to fit an image to a specific format without distorting it. I watched as a square image morphed into a horizontal image without stretching the important components of the image. 
It was experimental, but it looked like magic. Now it's in Photoshop under Edit, Content-Aware Scale. You need to tell Photoshop which parts of the image you'd like to have protected. If you don't, it'll guess, and it guesses actually pretty well. If you've ever had an image that won't fit the space allocated, and you can't crop it, you'll understand just how important this groundbreaking feature is. So being the cantankerous old coot that I am, I thought I would throw an uncommonly difficult image at Photoshop's content-aware scaling. I had a picture that was taken at Kaufman Park in Dublin, a white building with a lake in front, a long building that stretches almost from edge to edge of the picture. In other words, almost everything in this image is important. So let's see what happens. Well, the best option, and to get the full effect, you're going to have to visit the TechBiter Worldwide website. Again, that's www.techbiter.com. And then you can see the images I'm talking about. The best solution would, if I needed a square image, would just be to crop it square, cut off one wing of the building. Well, maybe I want the entire building. So then I tried just squishing the image. I was surprised. Not as bad as I thought. One rather obvious problem, though, windows that were square are now no longer square. So for my next attempt, I decided to let Photoshop decide on its own what to compress and what to leave alone. The result was kind of a wavy roofline, but overall the result, again, surprisingly good. And the square windows are still square. For my final test, I marked the tower and a small tree in the foreground. Those were the most important of the important parts of the image. The markings tell Photoshop to leave those areas alone. The left wing of the building becomes foreshortened quite a bit. The right wing becomes compressed, but the tower is essentially untouched. Image modifications such as this, while not ideal, can really save the day if you're faced with inserting a rectangular image into a square hole, or vice versa. To help reviewers, Adobe and most other software companies provide files that can be used to illustrate an application's new features. Now, as much as I appreciate those files, I rarely use them in a review because they're usually designed to show off an application's new features in the most favorable light. For example, Adobe would be unlikely to provide an image such as the one that I used to show content-aware scaling. Adobe would be likely to provide an image with one or two main objects surrounded by large open spaces. That would be the ideal image to use content-aware scaling on. Well, I prefer to give the program something a bit more challenging to work with. But to illustrate the new depth of focus magic in Photoshop CS4, I did use the files provided by Adobe. The image is one of a reel of film. The film spools off the reel, which is in the background, toward the front of the picture. So the film comes all the way out to the front. You can focus on the reel, or you can focus on the film near the front edge. You can't get everything in focus. Maybe you want everything in focus. You don't have a view camera with swings and tilts, so there's really no way to create an extended depth of focus for an image like this. This is actually an easy fix with Photoshop CS4. All you need is several images of the same scene with various points of focus. Open Bridge, select all of the images, and then load them into Photoshop as layers. 
Then you select all of the images in the Layers panel and choose Edit Auto-Align Layers to make sure that all the layers are lined up properly. And that makes this magic possible even if you didn't use a tripod to ensure alignment. The next step is to choose Auto-Blend with the method set to Stack Images and Seamless Tones and Colors turned on. Wait a moment or so, and you're done. It's that easy. Take a look at the TechBiter Worldwide website, and you'll see an image that is in focus from the back to the front. Perfectly. But then I decided to throw a curveball at Photoshop. I thought I'd give it an unfair challenge. I set up a scene with a foreground object and a background object. I used a handheld camera and captured just two images, one focused at the front, the other focused at the back. Unlike Adobe's series, which consisted of many more pictures with intermediate focus points, I wanted to see just how bad the results would be. The images that Adobe provided worked so well because Photoshop had so many images to work with. My reason for using just two was to see if I could break the process. If you look at the TechBiter Worldwide website, you may think that I'm using four images. I'm not. I actually took two test pictures before I took the two that I'd use for the actual process itself. So I really am using just two photographs. So I selected them in Bridge, sent them to Photoshop as layers, auto-aligned the layers, and that was particularly important this time because I had created the images without the benefit of a tripod. With the photos aligned, I then used the auto-stack function, Photoshop considered the task for just a few seconds. I was disappointed. The image was nearly perfect. The test I had devised to trip up Photoshop hadn't worked. Take a look at the image on the TechBiter Worldwide website. You'll see a couple of areas. That's a bit of fuzziness, a bit of blooming that really lets you know that this is a merge job. But this was done with just two images. The results are simply phenomenal. And you can also see how Adobe Photoshop does it. It uses alpha masking. And what's interesting, if you look at the alpha masking, is sometimes some of the parts that it selects for the foreground image are actually from the background. And in some cases, images it selects for the background are indeed part of the foreground. Why? That's because seamless tones and colors was turned on. The program wanted to do the best it could to make the transition perfect. Photoshop CS4 supports astonishingly large files, but only for Windows Vista 64-bit systems. The feature will be available to Mac users when Apple releases a 64-bit version of OS X. Photoshop CS4 also supports 3D acceleration via OpenGL-compatible graphics cards, so you'll see faster performance with 3D operations. But if you have an older video card, and mine being about 24 months old is a veritable antique by today's standards doesn't support that. So if you have a card like that, you may occasionally see error messages. Bottom line on Photoshop, if you skipped Photoshop CS3, don't skip CS4. In dealing with computers, it's important for me to keep two concepts firmly in mind. The first is that software is nothing more than a string of zeros and ones. And the second thing I keep in mind is Arthur C. Clarke's maxim, which states that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Photoshop is nothing more than zeros and ones, but increasingly it makes me want to believe in magic. 
For more information, visit the TechBiter Worldwide website, and you'll find a link there to the Adobe website. In nerdly news, speaking of Vista, Vista turns two. Did you send them a card this week? I gave Vista a present this year. I removed it from my computer. After two years of wishing and hoping that Microsoft would make Vista work, I have officially given up on it. I once said that Vista was inevitable. That was wrong. If someone like me, somebody who wants to make it work, and somebody who really does like large parts of it, has given up on Vista, what can the future be for what increasing numbers of people are referring to as ME2? ME, of course, was the name for Microsoft's much maligned, and rightly so, Millennium Edition. Even Microsoft admitted that the Millennium Edition was probably their worst operating system ever. Vista certainly doesn't even approach ME when it comes to being poorly designed, but it doesn't really work the way it was supposed to. And the fact that Microsoft colluded with hardware manufacturers to allow Vista-ready stickers to be placed on hardware that clearly wasn't remotely ready for Vista didn't help with perception of the operating system. So Vista's second birthday went all but unnoticed at Microsoft. The company seems to be hoping that people will just hang on with either XP or Vista until the next version of Windows is released. It's on a hurry-up schedule, but it won't see the light of day until late in 2009. And if Microsoft's past performance is any guide, it may not be until 2027. All right, there's a little hyperbole there. But I would be surprised if Microsoft ships Windows 7 before 2010. Gartner Research says that 90% of businesses are sticking with XP or Windows 2000. Only about 10% have moved to Vista. Most of those businesses are now planning to simply wait for Windows 7. The next version is, of course, based on Vista. But this time, Microsoft says they'll get it right. They'll demand that the development teams work together. What an interesting concept. You've probably been able to tell from my writing about Vista over the past two years that I liked it, then I disliked it, then I liked it again. In the end, frustration was setting in when a problem set in motion the changes that caused me to upgrade from Vista to XP. I'll tell you about that next week. Vista, it seems, is destined to join the ranks of other Microsoft failures. So my Vista disk will go to live with Microsoft Bob and Microsoft Windows Millennium Edition. But Vista will be back as Windows 7. Reloaded. Or maybe you'll move to Linux. In an eWeek magazine report, Jason Brooks writes, the latest version of Canonical's Linux distribution, Ubuntu 8.10, still outshines the Linux desktop offerings from Red Hat and Novell, and is the best open-source alternative to Microsoft and Apple operating systems. His report goes on to say that Ubuntu is behind the pack when it comes to running servers. Well, I'm more interested in what happens on the desktop. I had just set up my desktop computer as a dual-boot system with Windows XP and Ubuntu Linux 8.10. And I agree. Ubuntu Linux 8.10 is the latest release. The 8 means it was released in 2008. The 10 indicates October. Canonical always gives each version a name. Unlike Apple, which names all of its operating systems after cats, Canonical chooses from a variety of animals. Hardy Heron was the previous version. 
This time around, it's the Intrepid Ibex. Canonical continues to make an operating system that's capable of competing on the desktop, space that has largely been owned by Microsoft and to a much lesser extent by Apple. One of Ubuntu's primary advantages, at least the way I see it, is the ease with which a user with no Linux experience whatsoever can install and maintain the applications that run on Linux, whether they are maintained by Canonical, by the Linux community at large, or by commercial developers, such as hardware manufacturers who make drivers available for Linux. doesn't matter. It's easy. As Brooks put it, and I quote, While most Linux distributions come with the same software components, Ubuntu distinguishes itself with attention to usability, its large selection of ready-to-install software packages, and its large community of users and contributors. If you'd like to read the full report by Jason Brooks, there is a link to it from the TechBiter Worldwide website. And that's it for this week. Thanks for listening. This has been TechBiter Worldwide for the week of December 7th, 2008. I'm Bill Blinn. Don't forget, check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.